Sorry for making all that noise. Just, I figure might as well, if I sound like I'm in a big box or an echo, you know, might as well make it go, you know, as far as I can. Still pretty echoey, I think, isn't it? Is it a pretty echoey? Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a real technical term there, echoey. Yeah. Uh, testing one, two, mic check. Uh, okay. Well, as they're getting all of that said, I do want to, again, thank all of you who came to the conference this past weekend. Really wore us out. It was a long, long weekend, but uh, I think it was a very good weekend. Learned a lot. I hope that uh, those of you that bought books and DVDs and all of that, you know, read them. And, and you know, with everything, also be discerning for, with all of that stuff, too. You know, you just have to remember... You know, everything has got to be done in spirit and in truth. So in God's word and with God's spirit, you know, just nailing these things down. But I think I think we accomplished what we wanted to in in making clear to the congregation that we're living in a time where truth has been made relative rather than absolute. And always God's word has been absolute. So we have to remember that. And um, so I still sound like I'm in a box, don't I? Or sound like I got a cold. I really don't have a cold. (laughs) All right, Revelation chapter 13, verses 5 through 10. And really, we are going to go all the way to through 10. Next week, we'll, let, we'll conclude chapter 13 as we look at the false prophet uh, that's going to also come out of the sea and all the things that we've been talking about. Uh, we, we, we really need to look at now how all of these things fit into where things are going today. You know, where we are, where we're going today, and seeing how all of that is leading to the coming of Antichrist. Just the very thought that the church of Jesus Christ is, is so attacked today that the name of Jesus Christ... I, I, you know, this is interesting. I, I was watching a, a... It was just on TV and I was just flipping channels last night and uh, there was a Star Trek movie on, you know, and, uh, and uh, it was the first contact movie, you know, and... And I just, I, I've always liked science fiction. Like to me, it's fiction, so I don't worry about all that other stuff. But uh, there's a line in there where the guy is saying, I understand, you know, I don't like it when they use the name of Jesus, you know. But, uh, you know, he, he was saying, ah, Jesus, or something like that. And, but in this particular channel, they, they bleeped out Jesus, you know, as if, as if almost it's like a bad word, right? I mean, and I understand. You know, you shouldn't use it anyway. But what I'm saying is that this is the way things are happening, you know. Christianity is being attacked. Christ is attacked. The Word of God. Even in the church, as we saw this past weekend, the the numbers of of modern uh, translations that are not being faithful to the original manuscripts, but changing genders and changing all kinds of things within the text itself... All of these things are showing us that the signs are moving toward this coming 
world ruler that we call the Antichrist, who wants worship and is wanting also people to worship the devil himself. You know, the Antichrist, as we said last time, is just the counterfeit son of the devil. So, all right. Let's go to verse 4. We're going to start there just for context's sake. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? You see, because he's already been showing those uh, signs and lying wonders uh, in his own life, you know, in his own uh, evil life that he's been living. Uh, Verse 5, And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And once again, the 42 months is significant because it fits into the picture of the last three and a half years of the tribulation period. After everything has been revealed as to who he is and what he wants, and and so on and so forth in the temple, then the three and a half years itself is showing the power that has been allowed him uh, in these days and times that are coming. Uh, Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So notice, he blasphemes God, he blasphemes the name of God, he blasphemes the tabernacle, and and then he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. Which is an interesting thing, that uh, that he was blasphemed those who dwell in heaven. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. Uh, All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written, notice, in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. When we consider the classic definition of the word blasphemy, it would give us a very general understanding of its nature. It gives us a very general understanding of the nature of blasphemy, the the definition itself. Um, For example... Blasphemy, one definition is contemptuous or irreverent talk about God or things considered sacred. You can add to that thought a profane act. A profane act, utterance or writing concerning God or a sacred entity. In other words, profane language toward God, profane utterances, profane actions. See, actions can be blasphemous too, right? If they profane the name of God, then they're blasphemous actions. And blasphemous words and blasphemous writings. But then consider that this is also part of the definition of blasphemy. The act of claiming for oneself the attributes and rights of God. So how do you think that particular part of the definition applies. Well, it applies perfectly to the Antichrist, doesn't it? 
who not only speaks pompous words, proud words, and will speak pompous, proud words, but his actions of claiming for himself the attributes and the rights of God is equally blasphemous. Now, in the sense of speaking evil of God, this word of blasphemy is found in various places throughout the scripture. I just want to touch on a few so that you can get an idea of this issue of blasphemy. Psalm 74 verse 18 says, Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. They have profaned your name. Now, it's interesting that if you go on to Isaiah 52, verse 5, it says, Now therefore, what, I have, what, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing. Those who rule over them make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. That even the people of God have gotten to a point where they have blasphemed or profaned the name of God. Now, we are supposed to be very careful about the words that we use when, it, when we speak about the Lord, because, you know, the Lord is holy. The Lord is righteous. And that's why I think that when we speak kind of, you know, colloquially or, or uh, with, with the Lord, it's, you know, we, we not always respect the name of the Lord. So we have to be very careful. In Revelation chapter 16, uh, we'll get there hopefully soon. In Revelation 16 verse 9, it says, And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So this is now looking ahead of where we are right now to that time when the bold judgments are being poured out onto the earth. And as these judgments are being poured out, what are they doing? They are blaspheming the name of God. By the way, what we're going to learn is that the majority of these people, of course, are, are already worshiping the devil and, and the Antichrist. But they themselves would tell you that they are atheists. Isn't that interesting? An atheist doesn't believe that there's a God. So why do you blaspheme his name if there's no God? You see? So that's happening today as well. Atheists today will blaspheme the name of God, even though they say they don't believe that there is a God. Which proves what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, that everybody knows that there's a God. So... Verse 11 of the same chapter, it says they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and they did not repent of their deeds. Now this is kind of, this is kind of significant too because you see, nowadays people who, who claim to be believers or say that they're believers only when God does good things to them if, and when things happen that are not so good, what do they do? They get angry at God. I don't know why they do that. They shouldn't. The Bible is very clear. The Lord says, in, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, so you don't, you know, I, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you through the pains and the struggles and the trials and the afflictions of your life. I will be there to help you, to heal you, to heal the brokenhearted, and so on and so forth. But here's a time when there is no God, and I mean, the churches are taken out of the way, and, and says they blaspheme God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. So they obviously know that God is bringing judgment upon them, so now they start to blaspheme Him. Verse 21 says, And great hail from heaven fell upon men, each hailstone about the weight of a talent. By the way, the weight of a talent in this particular case is about 100 pounds. 
Now, I've been hit by hailstones. That wasn't, that wasn't a lot of fun. They were just little things, though. But uh, can you imagine a 100-pound one? Boy, the insurance companies would be having a good time. Man, or man blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since that plague was exceeding, exceedingly great. So, Jesus himself, by the way, was accused of blasphemy. Time and time again, he was accused of blasphemy by the religious leaders of the Jews. But he was accused of blasphemy when he claimed to be the Son of God. And in Matthew 26, verse 65, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look, now you have heard his blasphemy. So they had accused Jesus of blasphemy, and that's why they took him to the cross. Because this is right before they take him to the cross. He's being tried unjustly for blasphemy because he claimed to be the Son of God. fact of the matter is, he was the Son of God. And they were actually blaspheming him. Now we know that blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is regarded uh, by many as a continued and obstinate rejection of the gospel. And hence is an unpardonable sin simply because as long as a sinner remains in unbelief, he voluntarily excludes himself from pardon. Not to mention that the expression blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can also designate the sin of attributing to the power of Satan those miracles which Christ performed or generally those works which are a result of the Spirit's agency and the Spirit's work among us. So we're aware of that. We're not going to deal with that today. But as blasphemy pertains to the Antichrist, as blasphemy pertains to the Antichrist, we can go back to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter, uh, Revelation 13, because here we find the root of all blasphemies in these two verses. First of all, we see in verse 1, and this is just again review, but in verse 1 it says, And I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and notice, and on his heads a blasphemous name. On his head, or his heads, I should say, all of the heads, a blasphemous name. A name or a title. Keep that in mind. Write it in the margin of your notes or your book or your Bible. And then in verse 2 it says, Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear. His mouth like the uh, mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power. So it is in the dragon, which is the devil, Satan himself, that he gets his power, but he also gets what? He gets his pompous words. He gets his pompous attitude. He gets his prideful attitude and his prideful ways and his prideful things. This is the son of the devil, the Antichrist, in essence. So the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. When did the devil first blaspheme God? Genesis chapter when he said did God really say because he profaned the faithfulness of God's word he profaned the faithful acts of God he profaned the truth of God and he got man to do it he got man to doubt God I've mentioned that we need to keep an open eye and mind to the parallels that we are finding today 
in the religion of Islam as it pertains to the Antichrist spirit that is very pervasive in our society and world. So I want you to turn to 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. 1 John 2, verse 22. And I want you to notice the foundation of this particular statement. Now there are other statements given to us in 1 John chapter 2 about uh, the Antichrist spirit. But in particular, I want you to look at this one because it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah or the Christ? Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Messiah? He is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. Now that's very important. The denial of the Father and the Son. When we encounter any phrase that mentions the name of blasphemy or a blasphemous name, as we saw in, in, on, on the heads of the, uh, of, the, uh, of the beast, we are simply dealing with a title that will reveal the nature of the beast or the Antichrist. We're dealing with a title that reveals the nature and uh, the character of the beast or the Antichrist. Now, Walid Shubat points out that the Islamic statement of faith, which is called the Shahada, uh, which states this, and I think some of you have heard it, but it states, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the one sent by Allah. Well, that is a blasphemous declaration. Now listen carefully. It is a blasphemous declaration attempting to assign importance to Muhammad that belongs only to Messiah. It belongs only to the Messiah, who is Jesus. In fact, Islamic theology teaches that Muhammad is greater than Jesus. And therefore, the Antichrist spirit is one that blasphemes Jesus as Messiah. And so to blaspheme God, as Shubat writes, he says... To blaspheme God is to deny His attributes. To deny that He is the Father, that He has a Son, and that Christ, the Word of God, took on human flesh. That is the denial. According to Shubat, Islam is a polemic. In other words, a polemic, by the way, is a controversial argument, especially one refuting or attacking a specific opinion or doctrine. Islam is a polemic, a controversial argument against Christianity. and The whole of Islam is that. A polemic against Christianity and that it is the only religion with the central purpose of denying that God is our Father and that He has a Son who came in the flesh. And if you mention to any Muslim about the Father and the Son, they will immediately attack that. Because that is what Islam teaches. The denial that God is Father and that He has a Son that came in the flesh. They will even deny that Jesus died on the cross and that He rose again from the dead. So now Jesus' name is blasphemed constantly in our day and time as if there are hardly any restraints left, right? As I mentioned earlier, there are hardly any restraints left. But one day it will certainly be a lot worse. 
We ought to be thankful that we still have the opportunity to meet like we're meeting tonight, to speak as plainly and as clearly and as freely as we are about the, the Word of God. There are already nations today where this would not be a legal meeting in many countries. But the days are going to get worse. Look at what it says in Second Thessalonians 2, verses 7 and 8. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The thought of the restrainer being the Holy Spirit will one day be taken out of the way. Not so much that the Spirit can disappear because it doesn't, because the Spirit of God is as God is uh, ever-present. But the power and the restrainer that the Holy Spirit is, is being that in the church today. It is in the church today. There is a church that is a true church. It is the true church of, made, made up of every believer, true believer of Jesus Christ, who loves Christ, who follows the Lord, and who follows His Word and is obedient and, and, and consistent in His fellowship with the Lord. But there is a true church who trusts the Lord and trusts the Spirit of God that one day will not be here. And we've talked about that a lot in the book of Revelation, that especially chapter 4, that the church will be taken out. The church is never mentioned from chapter 4 all the way to the end of chapter 22. church is not mentioned any longer. Some say, well, there's other words, but yeah, but they're, they're different. We talk about the saints, tribulation saints, and also saints that are Israel who, are, who have come to be, believe in Jesus Christ as well. But the restrainer will be taken out of the way. And then notice verse 8, it says, And then the lawless the one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. So that's still yet to happen. But now John tells us in verse 6 of our text that the Antichrist's blasphemies will be directed at four things. God himself, his name which reflects his character, his tabernacle or dwelling place which always reminded the Jewish people of the glory of God, and lastly those who dwell in heaven. So let's look at verses 5 and 6. And he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. And then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. So the first thing, we're going to combine that he's, he's blaspheming God himself and God's name. So let's just wrap that up in this thought. He will blaspheme God's name. The Antichrist will ridicule and he will scoff at the nature and character of God's name. He may just point out the judgments of God as indications God is, is wrathful and, and to be resisted. It may be in that particular way. Uh, how interesting that many in the emerging church movement today are to some extent redefining the character and the nature of God by misrepresenting the scriptures concerning his judgments. Like Rob Bell, who, who says there really is no hell, therefore there really is no judgments. We make hell ourselves on this earth. But that's not what Jesus taught, is it? Jesus never taught that. 
As a matter of fact, he taught a lot about hell and about judgment to come. He was concerned about bringing people into salvation. He was concerned for his own people. He said, I came unto the house of Israel to save them. But in fact, he came for all of his creation. For everyone that was created in his image. But today, you, you can hear it in the New Age movement. You can hear it in the emerging church. You can hear it in the, the various world religions. That God is not a wrathful God. So the Christians all just teach and preach that God is, is just angry. And that God is hateful. And you know, when that starts entering into the church, we're in trouble. Because we've missed the whole picture of who God is. God is holy. Holy, holy. Read Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. The angels all around about the throne were singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. He's righteous. Our God is just. He's a just God. Our God is true. Our God is powerful, mighty. El Shaddai, the mighty God. Our God is omnipotent. In other words, He's all-powerful. Omniscient, He's all-knowing. Omnipresent, He's ever-present. No other God or other being or other creature... can match even one attribute of God. But blasphemy will continue so that man will resist him. So it's a bunch of lies that are given. His name is blasphemed. He will be Blaspheming God's tabernacle, God's dwelling place. There's a number of ways to look at this particular issue. Some have said that the tabernacle being that it is a temporary dwelling place could, could represent or could be Jesus himself, the one he sent the, the true tabernacle, as it were. The true house of God. You know, all of the tabernacle and all the temple, really, it would, you know, just, uh, just as the Ark of the Covenant was reflective of the presence of Christ and all. There are other ways of considering the tabernacle being the temple itself. 
It is uh, probably more than likely a reference to Antichrist's act of entering into the Holy of Holies in the Tribulation Temple and defiling it with his presence. Something that we know is going to happen is called the abomination of desolation as spoken of by the prophet Daniel. Something that was foreseen in the time of the, uh, uh, the Maccabeans in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament, somewhere around 200 B.C., where Antiochus Epiphanes entered into the, the temple and desecrated the temple. And that, again, we've talked about before, is going to happen when the Antichrist comes. So now we can understand why he wants to discredit God. Now listen carefully, if we tie these together, the discrediting of God's name and God's person. Because Antichrist wants to get all the glory. People discredit other people because they want to get the glory. But who is being spoken of in heaven that are troubling him? Because he says that he's going to blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. Why has that become now an issue? That Antichrist needs to blaspheme those who dwell in heaven. Well, the coming world leaders' blasphemy against those who dwell in heaven could refer to all the believers of the past who have died and are with the Lord in heaven awaiting the resurrection. It is also quite possible that the Antichrist will attack this point of view, or this viewpoint, as it were, arguing that there is no such place as heaven and dead believers are not with the Lord. So that is a very possible thing, that if you blaspheme heaven because you say there is no heaven, then what, whoever's in heaven is being blasphemed, in essence. They're being profaned because they're really not in heaven, because you, if you say there is no heaven, then that's the way it is. So you can give a lot of thanks to John Lennon and the Beatle for that. But I've, all, but I've always said, you know, if you, if you listen to the words of imagine, he says, imagine there's no heaven. And everybody says, oh, look, you know, we need to have that idea. Imagine there's no heaven. Imagine there's no hell. Well, without knowing that John Lennon was telling the truth in this sense, he says, you have to imagine that there is no heaven because there really is. You have to imagine that there is no hell because there really is one. So he doesn't know that. Well, he, oh, by the way, he knows it now. He knows it now. He knows the truth now. It's amazing how much you learn when you die. Another good possibility is that this world leader, this Antichrist, is blaspheming those who will have been raptured. And this is the most probable thought. Because these are the people that he can never get his hands on because of the Lord's protection upon them. Jesus said to the church, to his disciples, but he said to the church, Let not your heart be troubled. 
You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you may be also. And that's going to happen. And the devil and the Antichrist cannot get his hands on any one of us that has given his life and is hidden in Christ who is hidden in God. Isn't that encouraging? So he's going to have to give an explanation as to why millions have disappeared from the face of the earth. And so there comes the discrediting of the dwelling place of heaven. In essence, you're, you're blaspheming those in heaven because you have to tell people there is no heaven. Whatever happens, happens because of one quantum physics thing that might happen or whatever or who knows the stars finally aligned and we got rid of all those pesky Christians <laughs> well Daniel 7.25 says that he shall speak pompous words against the most high so that's blasphemy of God he shall persecute the saints of the most high and shall intend to change times and law. I, I, I would like to take that particular verse one day and just spend the whole time on that one verse. Intending to change times and law. Because that's happening today. It is happening in our own country. Our Constitution, for what it's worth, is in the crosshairs of a, of a society that wants to change everything that was good, that was designed to be good, that was actually founded in prayer for a nation and a people. And though it is not the word of God that, that it would extend, you know, forever like God's word, yet it survived a number of years. But now it's being attacked. And there is that talk that is going to be changed. You have to change a lot of things, and that's happening too. You have to change the you have to change the, the makeup of the Supreme Court, you have to change the makeup of Congress, and it all depends on who's sitting in the White House as well. But all of that aside, it's just interesting that when it talks about the Antichrist, it talks about him intending to change times and law. And then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and time and half a time or half which is what? Three and a half years. So we, we knew that. 
So this particular verse, and I, I put it here because it leads us into the next verse of our text, which is verse 7, where it says, It was granted to him, the Antichrist, or the beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. You know, there's a new name for the Antichrist and the beast, okay? We've already spent a lot of time on it. And the name is the blasphemer. He is the blasphemer, okay? So that's just another name I've got to tell you earlier. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. It was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Well, it is becoming clearer that the beast will become a world ruler and will exercise authority upon all the inhabitants of the earth. So it isn't just some portions of the earth. We're talking about the whole of the earth. Now, once again, you have to look at the way things have changed over the past 50 years, last 100 years, actually, when you think of how communication has just exploded, you know, and and that we can actually see things happening on the other side of the globe as it is happening. You all know that, that, that phrase now, breaking news. Every news organization has it. Breaking news, happening right now. You get up and you have your morning coffee and you're seeing the devastation that was occurring in, in the Philippines. You're, you wake up with your morning coffee and you see, you know, some guy being chased, you know, in, in, in the L.A. freeway. You know, they do that all the time. Those of you who live in, have lived in California know what I'm talking about. You know, KTLA also always watching, you know, oh, here's another helicopter following another guy, you know. I think they do it on purpose because they want to be on TV, you know. Somebody once said that. And so we always see that in California. You know, but, but, but we see it instantly. All these things are happening. I remember it even back in the early 90s when, when we went to the, in the first Gulf War. In the first Gulf War, we, we had the TV on. We were even having a... We were having a Pastor Albert meeting one day, and we had to turn the TV on because here we are sitting watching the invasion, you see, that was taking place over in the Middle East. Wow. See, nowadays, you know, everybody thinks, well, that's... But it wasn't that way before. Y'all remember when TV used to go off, off the air at 10.30? And you didn't know what was going on in the world until you woke up. So you got news way, way late. Even though it was early, it was late. But that's the technology of today. And so he's going to make war against the saints of God. The hagios, H-A-G-I-O-S. That is a word for saints. The Hagios of God. Now, there are three groups of saints that the the scriptures speak of, and we need to deal with this because this is important for us to understand who these saints are. Well, the first group of saints is the church. There's no doubt about that because how many times do we see in the letters of Paul that he writes to the saints in Ephesus or he writes to the saints in, in Thessalonica? He writes to the believers. The word saint is, is quite significant, and it should be in the, in, the, uh, in the realm of Christianity. It's not talking about somebody who's died, and we might just make him a saint, because they were a nice person, or they were good, or they had some miracles that surrounded them. No, the Bible says that we are saints because we believe in Jesus Christ. That's what makes us saints. Now, 
Saints means that we have been set apart for God. That's what Hagios means, to be set apart. So, you know, we, we can oftentimes turn that word into something that's, that's greater than it is, you know. But it's very simple, that if you're a believer, then you are a saint. Now, the church has saints today. But these would be the ones saved prior to the start of the tribulation period and are with the Lord before the tribulation period begins. So we are saints today. If the Lord, let's say, were to come uh, to start the process of the tribulation tomorrow, uh, and then we're gone. And, and so the, the church or the saints that are called the church, that group will be gone. That's the point. All right. So then there are those that are saved during the tribulation period. Many who will be martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. That's another group. We've already run into them already. You know, where the souls that were crying out from under the, the altar in heaven. You know, Lord, when are you going to, when are you, going to uh, um, you know, take care of what, what has happened to us and all. And so there are the tribulation saints. And, and then there are the Jewish believers who get saved during the tribulation period. These are also called saints. Now, that can be applied to them because even in the Old Testament, the believers that were the, uh, the Jewish uh, people were considered or called saints. So, uh, in the time of the tribulation period, these Jewish believers who get saved will be called saints as well. And we'll see that as we go. So we, we can see these distinctives and dis- distinctions, I should say. As we go, and so it is quite possible then that the saints spoken of here in Revelation 13, verse 7, are both saved Jews and Gentiles that get saved during the tribulation period. Now, there is a reason to consider this. So I want you to look at Jesus' statement in Matthew 16, verse 18. There it is. I'm going to get this and sit down. Would you all mind if I sit down? You don't mind if I sit down? Okay. I may look short. Okay, but I, I need to sit down for a second. Matthew 16, verse 18, it says, And, also sa- and I also say to you, now remember that Jesus is, is, is with the disciples in Caesarea Philippi. And uh, <clears throat> that's up, up north in the area of Dan and all. And, and those who have been to Israel know where that is. There's this, this big, huge, massive rock, which is really the, the beginning source of the, of the river Jordan. And, uh, but, but this is where they are, and they see this massive rock that we see when we go. And, and so Jesus says to you that you are Peter. He's talking to Peter, the, the, uh, the apostle. And on this rock, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, shall not prevail against it, which is the church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. When he says, and Peter, and, and on this rock, he says, I also say to you that you are Peter. And, and the reason he says it that way is because what he's saying is, you are Petros, which is a little stone. That's what Petros means. That's what his name, as Jesus called him, meant. And you are Petros, and on this rock, and he uses the word Petra for the word rock, as if he's as if he's using the, the, the massive rock as a, as a background to understand that is the rock of his profession or his confession that he will build his church. 
And, and that, of course, was a profession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was his profession of faith. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church upon which this uh, the church will be built on that foundation of, of that Jesus, you are the Son of the living God. So why do I mention that here? Because the word prevail in Matthew, what you see here, prevail, and the word overcome, do you see that in verse 7? The word overcome in Revelation, verse 7, chapter 13, they have very similar meanings in the Greek. Though the words are a little different, nonetheless, they have the very same kind of meaning, a very similar meaning. And it signifies that the saints that are overcome by the Antichrist cannot be the church. And that's the point. Because people want to keep the church in the time of the tribulation period. But the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. Whereas the Antichrist will overcome or prevail the saints that are there at the time. And will be there at the time. So this is another important distinction between the church that is raptured before the tribulation period and the tribulation saints. So I wanted to, I wanted to draw that, that, that uh, distinction itself. But there's one more thing to remember. Martyrdom. Because certainly every person who will die for their faith during that time, consider every person that has died for their faith during this, this time that we're living in today, and every person that has died for their faith in the time of, of the church from the very beginning, that their martyrdom is never a defeat for the children of God. Martyrdom is never a defeat for the child of God. Martyrdom is not a defeat. Please don't consider it in the same, in the same vein as, as, as those who are, who are martyred or, you know, doing the things that they do to hurt other people, you know, in the Muslim faith, you know, as they go out and they become suicide bombers and, and you know, and they're taking their own life as, and they call themselves martyrs. No. There, there, there's something very demonic about that. As a matter of fact, there's something very, very demonic about that. We're talking about those who have said, I give my life to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do we serve the Lord Jesus Christ? By being the examples of Christ, the love of Christ, the mercy of God, the mercies of God, the, the grace of God, the grace of the Lord, the word of God that is about his love and mercies, about salvation, about saving people. How different that is, you see. It is the ultimate victory of faith in the face of opposition. That is what martyrdom is. And we have to understand that it is part of the believer's DNA. It is part of the believer's DNA. Where do we know that from? Well, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 says, Jesus saying to the church and to us and to his disciples. Whoops, I went the wrong way, didn't I? Come back. There he is. But you shall receive power, he says. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. Notice what the word is in the Greek. Martus. The Y in, in Greek is, by the way, is pronounced like a U. Martus. That is the, the root word, or at least that's the origin of the word martyr. 
you shall be witnesses. To be a martyr means you're a witness. Or, hence, to be a witness means you're a martyr, in essence. And you shall be witnesses to me, to Jesus Christ, in Jerusalem, and in all of Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. what you sign up for. I didn't know that. Yeah, you got to know that. You got to know that. The Lord said he'd take care of you. There's going to be a tremendous price, folks, to pay for those earth dwellers that look to the Antichrist as their leader. There's going to be a terrible price to pay. If we die as believers, we instantly are in the presence of our God. We are instantly in the presence of the Lord who saved us. But for those who are going to be on this earth, when the Antichrist comes, and they do not turn their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, notice what it says in verse 8. Of, verse, of chapter 13. It says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, whose names have not been written in the book of life, of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Now let me, let me kind of bring this particular verse to, a, to an understanding, uh, grammatically speaking. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The phrase from the foundation of the world, usually in the English we are linking it to what? That the Lamb that is slain from the foundation of the world, because that's the way it's written in English. But in the Greek, in the, Greek the construction is different, which is interesting because the, the, the phrase, the foundation of the world, is speaking about those names that have not been written in the book of life. Now this is an interesting thing because what we're being told here is that there's going to be a choice. Well, talk about choice. Isn't that what we hear all the time? We're pro-choice. Pro-choice. You know, we've applied that, of course, to those who believe that, you know, women should have the right for abortion. And, and, and now they want not only the right for abortion, but they want abortions to be taken care of and paid for by us, taxpayers. Well, that's another matter. But here's the choice. Those who dwell on earth will be given this choice. Worship Antichrist, or be cut off from society at best, or be killed at worst. The Antichrist will eventually hijack the world's economic system by which everyone buys and sells to the extent that no one will any longer be able to conduct any transactions without swearing their personal allegiance to him. That's the whole idea here. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not at present talking about barcodes or the latest technologies connected to the economic systems of today. It's all pretty scary as it is, isn't it? But I'm not talking about that. As a matter of fact, next week when we get into the issue of the number 666, 
the number of the Antichrist or the beast. It's going to be astounding to think that it may not have to do anything at all with barcodes and computers and computer chips. It may simply be a thing that's on the head of a person upon which it says the blasphemies of God. Now, I'm not going to reveal more because I want you to come next week. But I'll tell you about it. But when you see pictures of Muslim uh, soldiers in certain armies, Hamas and Hezbollah, in Lebanon and Syria and other places, they wear those headbands. You ever seen the writings on there? Some interesting things about the writings that compared to what is told about putting a mark of the beast on the forehead and or on the right arm. Have you seen what they have on their right arms? They also have bands, armbands with the same lettering. It's all in Arabic. Surprising stuff. You've got to be here next week. I'm not going to put a headband on, but, uh, but if I have to, just so you'll get here to see it. No, it won't happen. But see, here's the ties between Allah and the Mahdi that the, uh, the Muslims are waiting for. They, they want complete worship. And they want everyone. The peace plan for Islam is that you bow down to Allah and that you serve Muhammad as his prophet. You do that, you're, you're, you're okay. You don't do that, you're not okay. So it sounds kind of similar here. You worship the beast or else. That's quite a choice. So if a person worships the beast and rejects the cleansing work of Jesus Christ, then their name will be blotted out of the book of life. They will spend eternity in the lake of fire, tormented and separated from the presence of God. Revelation chapter 3 verse 5 says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life. Now, so, so here the Lord is saying, I will not blot out his name. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now when the book is open at the great white throne judgment, the folks standing there are non-believers whose names cannot be found. And this will be sad beyond words. Their names were once listed and could still have remained in the book of life, but they chose to reject God's offer of eternal life, and they will be lost forever. And I want you to remember this. We cannot shake our fists at God and say, Oh God, why did you, why did you not save me? Because rather than shaking a fist at God at that time, before, they were just shaking their lives at God and saying, eh, I don't care about this and I don't want it. But is God so impersonal and so unloving that He would just want this for people? I read Ezekiel 33 verse 11 and this is what it says. Say to them as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
And that's now. And it makes me wonder why anybody wants to wait to receive the Lord Jesus Christ when they've heard the gospel. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And he's speaking to his own people who have turned from their God. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. Here's something to think about. In chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation, we saw the phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember that? Time and again. Actually, seven times. Why? Because there were seven churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. But here in chapter 13, we see that the word church is left out. Why? Well, it's quite possible that it's left out because the church has been raptured unto the Lord and this message is no longer for them, but for those who will be alive during the tribulation period and they need to pay attention to what the Lord is saying. Do you see how God has built into His Word that is yet future even warnings for those who are going to go into it that if you find yourself in that time of tribulation, it is time, high time, to call upon the Lord, even if you lose your life, because if you lose your life, you will save it. And so in closing, verse 10 is telling us that those who function in line with the beast are equally guilty. You see that? He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with a sword must be killed with a sword. Kind of goes back to something we read in the Old Testament that said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it kind of reminds us, you know, how important the law has always been. That if you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you're no longer under law but a grace. Yet the law is precious to God. Read all of Psalm 119 tonight, every verse. How precious the law of God is. Read the book of Romans when it talks about the law in chapters 6 and 7. That those who are without God, or, you know, they still have to be subject to the law. Though these things are prophesied in part of God's predetermined plan for the ages, it doesn't lessen man's personal responsibility. Just as the Lord used the Babylonians to chastise His people, but judged them nonetheless for their wickedness. Remember that? God used the Babylonians to take the children of Israel into captivity to teach them a lesson. And yet the Babylonians were cruel and harsh and, and, and wicked and evil. And God says, I'm going to judge you for that. Thus John adds this. He says, here's the patience and the faith of the saints. Their patience and endurance is 
the certainty of Jesus' soon return. It is the certainty that Jesus is coming again when He says He's coming. Their faith and their trust is their faithfulness to live accordingly whatever earthly course befalls them in light of their eternal future. And so for us as well. Because we know Jesus Christ is coming for His church, we need to stay steadfast. We need to stay immovable. We need to continue to be abounding in the things of God and in the work of the Lord until He comes. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. As a matter of fact, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and we'll close with this verse. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Whatever you're doing for the Lord, it's not in vain. It pays heavenly and eternal benefits. Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So where is your treasure? It has to be where? (laughs) It has to be where? Heaven. Heaven. Thank you. (laughs) It has to be where? (sighs) I know you all are tired. Look at me. I'm sitting down. I never sit down. I'm beat. But you know what? Our treasures in heaven is not they're not here. Where moth or rust or can destroy or thieves can break in and steal. People steal from us, we get a little upset, but then we say, well, you know, it's all gonna burn anyway. What matters is what we do with what we have eternally, folks. So I say to you, be steadfast. Be immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you.